0: Hi, thank you for joining us on one of the most comprehensive podcasts devoted exclusively to family offices, Family Office World. I'm your host, Ron Diamond, Chairman and CEO of Diamond Wealth. We represent 100 single family offices ranging in size from $250 million to $30 billion. I've been the keynote speaker at dozens of family office conferences around the globe and have spoken at over 150 family office conferences in the past five years. I'm in the process of writing a book on family offices and have consulted with dozens of firms who want to work with family offices, including banks, accounting firms, law firms, philanthropies, and various service providers who want to know what it takes to get in the door and then add value to the family office community. I serve on the board at Stanford University and teach courses in their graduate business school, engineering school, and entrepreneurship programs. I chair the Chicago chapter of Tiger 21, the investment group for enhanced results with 750 members worldwide, representing assets in excess of $75 billion. And I serve as the chairman of the advisory board for four privately held companies, as well as serving on the advisory board for six public and privately held companies. Family office world takes you deep into the inner workings of family offices. Each episode, will have a different expert who works closely with family offices. Our goal is twofold, one, help family offices become more institutionalized and connect with each other directly throughout the country. And two, help service providers navigate the best way to add value and ultimately have family offices as clients. Please subscribe on iTunes or your favorite podcast app. I'm thrilled to have Michael Loeb with us today. Michael's a friend, and I, I, I think if you look at uh, in a dictionary and you see the word entrepreneur, you probably see Michael's picture. Uh, Michael, there's a lot that I want to talk to you about, and I appreciate your being on. Before we dive into your expertise and kind of what you do, uh, one of the questions that I ask everybody, because there is no right answer, is what is a family office? So through your lens, I'm going to ask that question. What is a family office?
1: Well, I'm glad there's no right answer, um, because I don't know if my definition will follow uh, everybody else's. I would say that a family office is a bespoke um, group of financial experts that manage one account. Uh, so, unlike a Goldman Sachs, which manages many, many accounts, this would be for one account. Um, it is uh, the mindset, of course, is multi-generational and bespoke, and would reach into all phases of uh, family. Um, of that family more than just um, investable assets and investing, although that's a big part of it, but um, accounting, estate planning, um, succession, uh, because, uh, you know, the moving from one generation to another of um, dynastic wealth is uh, critically important. And as you go down the generations, uh, you find uh, that uh, people have a, a lesser or greater interest in Uh, managing the family affairs. So that is my definition, a group of um, financial experts who uh, have a bespoke mission that uh, serve a singular family, all their financial, um, and that Um, that's a capital F, which is very broad, to include all the other affairs from accounting to estate planning to generational planning, as well as uh, managing the family assets.
0: Got it. So, you know, when I went to see you and your venture collective, I thought, you know, if Willy Wonka did startups and not chocolate, Loeb Enterprises, which is your entity, is it. So can you take a minute and tell our audience, you know, Um, About you your model for launching new companies,
1: right? Well um, tonight actually Ron, I have an event for Michael Bloomberg and What I have in common with Michael Bloomberg uh, Is that he and I were both fired in our late 30s? Um, We both did well although he did much much weller than me but um, Uh, In my late 30s, I had to come up with an income, and I wound up uh, building a company outside of Time, Inc., which was the company that hired me and fired me, that I was trying to start inside of Time, Inc. Um, I founded that company with a founder, uh, with another founder, a co-founder, and that was Jay Walker, and Jay... um, Brilliant guy, uh, but uh, frankly, um, executional matters were something that uh, did not use his mind, his great mind, uh, optimally. So he be, he was the guy who thought of our next chapter together, and he came up with the idea for Priceline.com. So uh, we actually launched Priceline inside of Synapse, and that model of multiple companies Using one set of employees and infrastructure and services was very intriguing to me. Uh, Priceline went public in '99. Synapse was uh, going to go public, and then Time, ironically, the company that fired me uh, nine years after Synapse was founded, um, uh, gave me a cash an all cash offer I couldn't refuse, um, which included a very long earnout. And then uh, when I emerged from that, I thought uh, of the many things they could do, that little experiment we had with Priceline and Synapse was really interesting. And at the time, Jay and I didn't really know how, how it was going to turn out. Uh, would the folks who all of a sudden had two jobs, would they rebel or would they find it uh, engaging and intriguing and challenging? And I'm happy to say that in most cases, most all cases, it was the latter and so writ large that's what we have today at loeb enterprises Um, we have uh, two dozen companies that we're building Uh, half of the companies are in our headquarters in new york half are outside in new york i have three in california one in chicago i'm happy to say one in boston um one in atlanta two in virginia one in florida so all around the country uh, there's reasons for all of that and what We do, in addition to having the ideas and uh, launching the companies and providing the capital, is we accessorize that with what we call shared services, which is meant to be every tool in the toolkit that you need to build and scale a company. And that would include things like back office accounting, which, by the way, entrepreneurs are fundamentally lousy at, to trade marketing, patenting. Uh, incorporating, so all the legal uh, stuff, uh, to providing infrastructure, community, uh, and then we get into the more artful stuff like UI, UX, tech, big data, uh, and then all the forms of marketing from old school to new school. Um, Old school being things like direct mail. We have our own telemarketing center um, that is for our purposes. Uh, and, um, then the new school stuff is SEM, SEO, social infrastructure, uh, programmatic, um, influencer, et cetera, et cetera. All those services are free to the companies. Um, that's because I don't want to have anybody having an argument of, you know, what do you mean it took you three hours to make a logo? And yes, we have an in-house art department to do all that. If you're not going to have that debate and everybody's working together, then all those shared services serve the two dozen companies that we are building and capitalizing. We do go for outside capital, not all the time. But when it makes sense, if uh, the time to profitability is not very long, then we'll just build it internally, with internal capital, if it's one of those companies that will have a significant value, uh, but require a lot of capital and a lot of time, then we will go for outside capital. But we get to time that and we get to determine who we talk to, which is a luxury you don't often have when you start a company. It's usually your back is to the wall and you need to get it tomorrow. And um, you'll take the expensive money because that's the only money available to you. So that's kind of the model. We um, uh, employ, I don't know, about 400 people. It's a little bit hard to count because if you own 70% of a company, is that 7 tenth of an employee? And we sometimes scale, as I mentioned, right to exit, sometimes to private equity, as we're doing in one company right now. And um, we also, in addition to the 24 companies we're building, we have investments in another couple dozen, A few dozen uh, that uh, accessorize our direct builds Um, because what I look for in addition to the uh, thick walls and the sentries and the moat, um, when I build something, I get the spies in the field and that's the adjacent companies that we make passive investments in. So I don't know if that explained it very well, uh, but um, that's kind of the model.
0: No, it, it did, and it's brilliant. I just out of curiosity, does does anybody else that you know of have a model close to this?
1: I'm told no. I'm told that um, there's something called Rocket Labs in Germany. I'm in the same breath told uh, that um, they're not very well liked because they'll hear a pitch and they'll copy it. Um, we are, by the way, founder-friendly. Um, because our founders are halfway between a founder and a, and an employee as in it's still a high wire act, but we do have a net. So they yet they have a salary and whatever project we, put them on if uh, it doesn't work out for whatever reason or if there is a positive conclusion like a sale, we'll re-up those guys by showing them the project list and we'll ask them, which one do you want? Uh, and he or she will say, that's the one. and um, Or I want to lie on a beach for a while and then I want to come back. Uh, so we um, uh, we protect our entrepreneurs. We make sure that they win when we win. And that's not often the case with outside capital. Uh, with outside capital, it's, you know, if I win, you lose and vice versa. Uh, so they do a lot of squeezing as opposed to protecting of the entrepreneurs. So it's a differentiated model. You um, Again, we put about $50 million of our own capital to work each year, which would be a nice size fund. Um, and so I think you need several things, including a lot of you know, personal money to do this, but you need to have the, you know, arrows in the back experiences of both successes and failures in order to appreciate really what goes on, because um, we've seen plenty of both, and we've done plenty of both. Uh, so we come at it not from a financial orientation, but an operating orientation, an entrepreneurial entre- orientation, because that's what we are You know, first. Um, the money piece we had to learn, and we're still learning, uh, but uh, the entrepreneurial piece we had to learn first.
0: So, you know, just f- from a scale standpoint, how big is Loeb Enterprises?
1: Again, about two dozen companies, 400 or so employees, and um, 50 million a year. And if you think the, you know, the front to back um, of a company is 7 to 10 years for an outcome, uh, you can multiply that 50 times 7 to 10, and that's a pretty big-sized venture firm. So we're, um, I
0: think we're pretty large. Got it. So let me ask you this. Um, you know, when you start something, do you have a swim lane? That is, what industries do you work in?
1: Uh, that's a great question, Ron. Thank you. Um, we actually don't uh, pick a swim lane. And it reminds me a little bit of uh, what my a conversation I had with my dad when my dad was telling me that he's going to move from Time Magazine, where he was world editor, to Money Magazine, which was all about personal finance, but he was um, going to the top box, he was going to be managing, a managing editor, so he's going to run his own show. And I said, Dad, I was all of 24 at the time, I said, Dad, why are you going to do that? You don't know a thing about personal finance. And his answer was, I don't have to, I'm a journalist. And what that meant was he had a sense of how to ask questions and how to write a story. I think we're swim lane agnostic for the very same reasons. Um, We will learn about healthcare where we have a couple of companies. We will learn about retail tech where we have a couple of companies. We'll learn about fintech where we have uh, several companies. Um, And a lot of times, Ron, what that means is we'll put somebody on the team with vast experiences in those domains, um, but the the process uh, and the discipline and the boxes you have to check um, for a startup it's kind of like same church different pew, but you know a cook knows how to follow a recipe and they can cook many different types of meals. Um, Likewise, we think of ourselves as doing the same. Now, what is our swim lane? We are direct to the consumer marketers. So, if you start if you start talking about B two B stuff, not so much. Um, we are, uh, and if you talk about retail, not so much. If you talk about international, not so much. Um, I've learned the hard way that uh, domain expertise is just that. Uh, A and B, frankly, the United States is a great country to start businesses in. It's not only a very large market, but it's a very adaptable market. And we have wonderful tools and wonderful access to capital. Uh, The tools I refer refer to are these enormous distribution channels that you've got, um, you know, with Google and Facebook and others, which, um, you know, if you got a product or a service, uh, you've got wonderful, massive, massively powerful tools that you can slice and dice and leverage against any new product, which is really kind of amazing.
0: Got it. So, you know, I know we speak at Stanford about the fact that there has been a lot written that fewer companies are actually being launched. So a couple things, one, do you agree with that? And two, if you do or don't, why would that be?
1: Uh, You know, I, You know, look, statistics, they say that uh, figures don't lie, but liars can figure or something like that. But I'm I'm sure that stats are right, but I find them very curious because I don't think there's ever been a greater time to start a business um, for multiple reasons. Let's start with there is a mindset of disruption. And if we go back in time, you know, to the 70s, 80s, 90s, the C-suite right? The Fortune 500 C-suite had it in their head that, you know what? Tomorrow is going to look a lot like yesterday. And they really didn't have to change much. In fact, they were anti-change because, um, you know, the status quo was really serving them quite well. Now there is a, you know, right in the C-suite, a change or die mentality, which is brand new. Second, uh, you can do more with less. Uh, You take a service like AWS, um, Amazon web services and it's astonishing what that can do. It can store, you know, terabytes of data for pennies. Uh, and if not pennies, small dollars amounts, which is astonishing. I remember buying storage units for like $7 million a throw. Um, and now you don't have to do that anymore. So you can build tech, uh, much more inexpensively, uh, than, than we could in years, years ago. Um, Third, uh, capital formation. We have access to giant markets and giant wells of capital if you need it. And fourth, uh, we get back to what I said earlier, which is profoundly powerful distribution channels that reach globally you know, billions of people. And you can slice and dice, and not only that you can see within moments uh, exactly the performance of whatever ad or whatever, you know, copy words that you had and you can see that within seconds what what that how that did in the marketplace and you can change it on the fly really remarkable stuff that we never had tools we never had available to us in any other time in history except this one so if it is the case that fewer businesses are started now i find that very curious. And to that, I'll add one other thing, which is for years and years and years, you know, our Education institutions never really regarded the entrepreneur. If you went to um, Harvard Business School 20 years ago, they wouldn't be talking about anything but IBM or McKinsey uh, or some other large company. Today, uh, they're all about startups and there's whole courses about startups. So I think that um, we've recognized in this country that um, really um, the thing we do extraordinarily well, if you look at the great companies that have been built in the last 20 years, the Microsofts, the Facebooks, the Googles, uh, the Netflix, and you ask, where have those companies been birthed? It's been in this country uh, and not um, in any other place in the world. That's not to say we have a monopoly on startups. It's just to say a preponderance of some of the more profound ones happened here. Now, China could be an exception, but China, frankly, is a closed uh, market. And were Alibaba in the beginning, uh, where you know Jeff Bezos let loose on Alibaba, I'm not so sure that Jack Ma would be as sitting as pretty as he is right now. So um, we do this startup thing in this country extraordinarily well if you by the way see the you know the faces behind uh the companies that are started up uh these people come from all over the world and they come here to start their companies and they come here for a reason so i um i am surprised that that stat and i'm sure it's true says what it says uh but uh certainly uh If you look at the proof point and look at some of the, you know, you look at the Dells and the Microsofts and the Facebooks and the Netflix, et cetera, et cetera, and the Googles, of course, um, this is where they start. And they started now. And we can only begin to believe, you know, or begin to understand the great companies that are being built now, the Slacks and so many others uh, that, um, uh, you know, even WeWorks, when it, Picks itself up will be extraordinary. The Airbnbs, amazing companies, and this is where they started, and they are they're changing the world.
0: Got it. So, I'd like to have you tell us a little bit about your journey. You know, one of the my favorite images is the you know the picture of the iceberg with you know t- showing ten percent and the ninety percent that people don't see. Um, how for you, because you uh, you know you've obviously achieved tremendous success. How did this all begin? And then another question that I'm asked a lot, and I certainly don't know the answer to, and I I think you will either know the answer or certainly have an opinion. Are entrepreneurs born and is that a learned skill?
1: I actually think entrepreneurs are born and, um, I think there is an entrepreneur gene and, um, Uh, I think I'm going to ask 23andMe to isolate the entrepreneur's gene, and then I'm going to bottle it, and I'm going to sell it for a (laughs) lot of money. That's probably going to be my next venture. I got to tell you, there are... You know, 1% of the kids, and Ron, I'm sure you were this kid yourself, you know, that kid, right, who got the paper route, and not just one paper route, but 10 paper routes, and then after 10 paper routes said, okay, I need 100. How am I going to do that? I'm going to hire the other kids, and they're all going to ride on their bicycles for me. That's that kid, right? And it starts early, and I don't know exactly where it comes from, but there is something about... Those kids that, you know, at a very early age, they're the kids with the lemonade stand, but not just any lemonade stand. The lemonade stand of all lemonade stands, right? And the lemonade stand that when you run out of lemons, they use dad's grass cliffings and they say it's an organic something or other green juice, right, with sugar in it. And they charge twice as much and they make five times more money because they got no cost of goods. That's the kid And not every kid does that. And every entrepreneur I talk to says that they were that kid. And so I do think it's a gene. And not everybody is interested in that. And the other thing is, it's the kid that doesn't want to go to the mall and the kid who doesn't want to play video games. It's the kid who's hustling and always coming up with a new idea to make money, as outrageous as it is. And I think that you can teach some of the skills related to business craft. But I think it starts with that kid who looks at the world and says, oh, my God, I could do this. In fact, I can do it better. I can do it better than anybody in the world. So I do think it's, um, I think it's a gene. And uh, it needs to be isolated. And before the robots come and take over, okay, we got to put it in the bottle because that's going to assure our survival because robots won't be able to do that.
0: If you do start this company, I want in. Um, Let me ask you this, and and this is something, it's more psychological, but it's something that, you know, when I was younger, I was always curious. You know, you certainly don't need the money, right? So, my question is, and I know you, we've become friends, and I know how hard you work. So, why do you work as hard as you do and not, you know, go retire to the beach? You got a beautiful house in Southampton, even why not do that
1: you know what i can ask the same question of you ron right so um i'm gonna answer for both of us and um i when i think about that question i think about i think it was keats not 100 percent sure somebody will be able to correct me uh but he has on his tombstone uh, a line from one of his poems which is our names are writ on water Right. But that's on his tombstone. And that's in granite. Right. So it's like, screw you. My name is not written water. Your name is written water. And the guys that I. The men and women that I admire the most are the people who have built something. And I think the God of all gods is Steve Jobs. And if you look at Steve Jobs, the reason why um, I find him the God of all gods is it's not just because of apple it's because of the fact that he transformed a half dozen industries from um the music industry to the movie industry to you know the telephone industry which really isn't telephone or telephonics at all it's it's a computer in your pocket uh to everything else that he did truly extraordinary and he had this amazing gift to see the future and realize the future Which reminds me of another line, can't remember who said it, but uh, the line goes something like this, I paraphrase, which is, uh, reasonable men yield to their circumstance, and unreasonable men force circumstance to yield to them, therefore all progress is made by unreasonable men. And um, by very definition, Jobs was about the most unreasonable man ever. Every reading of every biography, every movie will illustrate the same thing. He he really could be, you know, he could be a jerk. But he knew exactly what the future was, and he knew to, how to navigate to that star. And he was unrelenting in his mission to do that. And so if he got in that way, he's just going to run you over. So it's not about... Ron, for you or me, it's not about the money. Really what it is, it's about making a difference. It's about being able to realize the future, to see something in the future, and be able to make something that realizes that future. And the thing I say about building a company, it's the second most profound, important, and marvelous thing after birthing a baby is birthing a company. And to see an idea Uh, spring from your mind or somebody else's mind, and put it into practice, and watch it grow, and watch it benefit people, benefit all the stakeholders, the people who work in that company, the people who buy that product or service, and see it benefit society, and then, by the way, be able to do it again and again and again, there is nothing, there is nothing more rewarding than that. And so the money, okay, the money comes later, but the money comes after the mission. And if it, if it doesn't make money, frankly, the world won't go around because you can't pay for the next one if the last one didn't make money. But by God, if it does, there is, no more, there is no more greater satisfaction than doing just that, building something, changing lives, changing the arc of society, even just a little bit, to be able to point to that and say, that was mine. I influenced that. I was able to rally a bunch of brilliant minds around this one point and everybody got behind it and everybody built it and look at the result. That to me is really what it's all about. And I'm going to, I'm going to do that until they pull me out in a box uh, because it is so much fun to be able to, to be able to do that.
0: Um. So we're in an election year, right? Should entrepreneurs care?
1: We should. And let me tell you why. And this is by the way, I have a very, um, I have a very dollars and cents point of view on politics. For me, it's not about politics. It's not about personality. It's about from what, from my perspective, what is the best for the country? And when I think about this country, um, the fact of the matter is if we are not growing, we're dying. And if we're not building, we're going backwards. And um, as much as, Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders are well-intended uh human beings the fact of the matter is the policies of which they speak and again this is not meant to be a political statement it is just fact that if you were to promulgate a policy that said that hey Michael you can invest whatever money you want to invest and if one of those seeds that you planted And by the way, Ron, the odds are one in 10, all right? That's the published odds of venture, that one in 10 work. And I'll give you something else, which I think is very profound, which is if you look at uh, unicorns, right? Those companies with a billion dollar valuation, in um, 2018, about 160 unicorns were birthed worldwide. And I do this test, right, with the gray hairs in the venture industry, and I say of those 160 that have reached a billion-dollar valuation, now the presumption would be you get to a billion dollars, you are home free, right? You can cash out. It It is guaranteed. What percentage of those unicorns will have a good outcome? The consensus figure is 20%. 20%, 20%, which means that even if you get the unicorn status, the failure rate, right, a bad outcome, four times out of five. So what I'm getting at is the odds of being an entrepreneur are very daunting and very tall. We think, with our model, the success rate is much, much higher than two in 10 and one in 10. Um, we think it might be even more than 50 or 60%, but that's a different discussion. The question is, if you're going to put all that risk and all that money and all that energy at risk, you know, in the beginning of the process and at the end, it gets taken away from you and you have a tax on your assets every single year. And for Sanders, it's 8 percent, the proposal is, and for Warren, 6 percent. That means every on top of all your other taxes, your assets, whatever... They calculate that to be, and at Loeb Enterprises, we've got a lot of companies that are startup companies that, you know, somebody could go in, I don't know how they're going to calculate that, but they can look at one of my companies and they say, ooh, that's worth a billion dollars, give me a check for 80 million bucks, right? Right and there's a company that's losing $80 million, right? But they're saying, give me a check for $80 million. Take it another way, the the New York Yankees, which are worth $4.5 billion, right? That's the, when you go to Forbes and you look at the New York Yankees, they say it's worth $4.5 billion, right? If you take 8% of $4.5 billion, That's $360 million a year. The Yankees don't make anywhere near that. In fact, they barely make money. They got a lot of asset value, but they don't make money. The New York Yankees, the owners of the New York Yankees are gonna donate the New York Yankees to the government and get the write-off, because they're also gonna raise taxes. So my point is, there becomes no incentive for you if you cannot have a victory, if you cannot harvest, because the harvest goes to the government, then guys like me will say, you know what? It's not worth it. I am going to retire to my house in Southampton. I'm going to play tennis, grow tomatoes, and watch the waves crash on the beach as long as there's a beach left uh, based on our carbon footprint. But um, start new companies. Why risk the money if at the end of the day, all that happens is that it goes to the government. So, if it's If there's not a calculus to it, if you're not you know going to wager all this money only to have it go entirely to the government, and that's what happens the eight the six and eight percent tax is known as an extinguishing tax, and that is because and again they're fine people and they're passionate in their belief, and they you know this is the United States, and thank God everybody you know can own their own beliefs and they should be above reproach for that but it's an extinguishing tax it is meant to get rid of billionaires because they think billionaires are wrong the notion of a billionaire in society means that society has done something wrong Something has happened in our policy that allowed billionaires to happen, and that it's cancerous, and we gotta get rid of it, and billionaires are a mistake uh, of capitalism, and that is what a 6% every single year, on top of your other taxes, 6% 6 on assets mean, and, or 8% on assets mean, and it's meant to rid the United States of billionaires, because, fundamentally, that's wrong. There was a time where we embraced that, where we'd look at a Steve Jobs or we'd look at a Bill Gates or a Buffett or a Michael Dell uh, and say, you know what, they created something marvelous and they did very, very well by doing it. They didn't do anything illegal. They didn't step on a bunch of heads. They actually built something of value for society, and they were amply rewarded for that. I mean, think of a world without Google. Think of a world without Microsoft. Uh, think of a world without Dell computers, because Dell really pioneered you know, the whole laptop thing at a great, great price for all consumers. Uh, the society would be much worse off. I'd think of a world without uh, Steve Jobs. And um, all the Apple products. Um, So yes, uh, Jobs or his widow is a uh, there. She is a billionaire. Uh, Lauren is, but she, you know, the fact of the matter is, for his contribution to society, was he amply rewarded? Absolutely. Um, Is it outsized compared to his contribution? I would argue not. And by the way more than half the billionaires in this country have signed the Giving Pledge, which is, during their lifetime, they will give away more than half their wealth uh, to charitable causes. So, you know, billionaires not only have a great contribution to society, not only pay a lot of taxes, um, and by the way, more than the normal person, I would say, but also, uh, even at the end of that, they want to give back to society, give back to the United States because they think this country uh, is so valuable in having them build whatever it was that they built.
0: Well, I think we're, I agree with everything you just said 100%. So last question that I have for you, um, and and again, I could speak to you for hours. Let's say I I have an idea and I've got a really cool idea for a company. Why do I go to Loeb Enterprises versus Sequoia or one of the other venture capital?
1: Sequoia is a great company. And um, the other famous VCs, um, you know, like Andreessen Horowitz, like Excel, great companies. But they're not there to start things up. They're there to take a look at something already started up and see if they wouldn't want to fuel The growth of those companies. Uh, Why bring it to us? For several reasons. One, um, we will take a serious look at it uh, and um, tell you our opinion. Two, if uh, you had an idea and you came to us and we did like it and we thought it was in our wheelhouse and we would tell you if it's a good idea and not in our wheelhouse, but if it's in our wheelhouse, uh, we would then say, Ron, you know what? Um, you're a great guy, great operator, you have a history, track record of success, but you don't need that with us, by the way, but that helps. Um, we would like to partner with you. We would like to fund you. And we p- promise that, uh, we are entrepreneur friendly. We will preserve your equity over multiple, uh, infusions of capital, uh, because if you're not happy, We're not happy because for us, it's for keeps Um, because if you dispatch yourself well in this enterprise, we're going to re-up you again and again and again because we want, now that we have broken each of us in and we appreciate and understand one another, we don't want this to be a one and only. We want this to be a long-term relationship.
0: So, in, in in other words, this it's almost like the almost the like the antithesis of the typical venture capital model.
1: Yep, I I would say that um, one thing I found interesting, Ron, is people uh, talk about the PayPal mafia, and um, venture uh, will back almost anybody who was in the inner circle of a winner. And um, how we think about it is when we have a winner. It is our inner circle, so why wouldn't we back our own people again? And um, you know, I have a 26-year-old, a 26-year-old managing one of our companies, and um, it's going to have a valuation of about 500 million when it goes out next. It already went out once at about a 200 million, and it's three times bigger than it was when it went out for 200 million. And I said to I said to this founder, you know. You know, you're screwed. The only person you can work for in your entire life is me uh, because you're going to exit this thing by the time you're 30 and you're going to be so incorrigible. There's only one human being on the entire planet who's going to understand you and that's me. And we're going to go through the project list. You're going to point to one and we're going to do this all over again because what are you going to do? You're going to work in the C-suite of some, you know, Fortune 500 company? Never. Never right? Um, because starting things are too much fun. So that's kind of our model. Uh, that's kind of our mantra. It's so far been working for us. Uh, part of the things that make it real is that every day, um, you know, there's always a decision every day. There's something in the balance. Um, and so that's what, um, that's what gets me out of bed every day. And that's what makes it fun.
0: Well, this has been terrific. Uh, if somebody, if an entrepreneur, if somebody wanted to get a hold of you, what's the best way for them to find you?
1: Well, um, I would say uh go to um uh you know mlobe at um lobeenterprises dot com. So this is a good way.
0: Well, this has been great. I again I really appreciate it. Thank you for your time. Again, you've been terrific. Uh you've been a role model for many, many people in greatly appreciate your time. This has been terrific.
1: Thank you, Ron. Uh, Appreciate it. Um, And um, good luck.
0: All right. Thanks, Michael. Talk soon. Bye. Thank you for joining us on Family Office World. Don't forget to subscribe on your favorite podcast app. If you like the show, rate it five stars and leave a review. Join us again next time for another episode of Family Office World. Thank you and have a great week.